Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. This podcast is brought to you by Tethered, the makers of the most badass saddle gear you can find. Of course, I've been using their Mantis Saddle and Predator platform for some time now, but they have a few new things cooking. And the first thing to come out is the recently released Versa Strap that they just came out with. Uh, this Versa Strap is a woven, uh, ultra-high molecular weight uh, fibers. It's usually what you would hear referred to as Dyneema or Amsteel. And this, of course, is one of the strongest fibers on Earth. It's used in a, in a host of products, but if you you're using a Mantis saddle already, you probably already recognize that Amstil is what your bridge is made out of. What's the benefit to the hunter? Well, it's super strong and you do not sacrifice any uh, weight issues. Literally, you get four of these straps, daisy chain straps, uh, which would outfit all four of your sticks and the total weight for all four of those straps is 4.4 ounces. That is versus, you know, what you would usually get with your uh, sticks with the buckle and et cetera, et cetera, which is, is a lot more that one strap away a lot more than all four of your uh, daisy chain versus straps. So they have three different versions out that you can choose from. They have a mini versus strap. This one is actually really well suited for those uh, smaller versa buttons. So those that, you know, would come on the lone wolf custom gear sticks, hunting bee sticks, or if you're DIY and your sticks and using small versa buttons that is probably the one that you want uh, again 4.4 ounces for a four pack and the average breaking strength is 1500 pounds which is crazy strong the second option they have is the versa strap this one is three quarter inch inches wide uh, and weighs four grams per foot so 0.14 ounces and this one you would want to use more for those uh, sticks that have larger versa buttons like the lone wolf sticks hawk helium sticks and things of that nature again 4.4 ounces for a four pack and 1500 pounds average breaking strength. They also have a poly versus strap. Now this one is uh, three quarters inch wide and it weighs just a little bit more when I say a little bit more, five grams per strap or 0.15 ounces. And this one is perfect for versus buttons that are 1.25 uh, inches in di diameter or more at the, the widest point. So again, this would be good for your lone wolf sticks, hawk helium sticks, etc. These ones, however, aren't quite as strong as the mini versa and the versa strap uh but the average weight breaking strength is 800 pounds so well above what you would need for sticks so if you'd like to learn more about their versa strap options or any of their saddle gear head over to tetherednation.com that's t-e-t-h-r-d-n-a-t-i-o-n.com and check it out we're also brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. Skull Brew is a company that my wife and I started to give back to conservation. Every purchase that is made, 10% of all of our profits go back to support nonprofit conservation organizations like RMEF, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, QDMA, and the Nature Conservancy. You, when you choose a product and you head to checkout, you choose which organization receives your portion of the, of the donation. We recently launched a new product, uh, so we have now a light roast for all you light roast coffee 
drinkers out there. It is a Ethiopia Harar, which is a little higher in caffeine, so it starts your engine in the morning. It's killer hot, or if you're like me, I really dig it as cold brew. So head over to SkullBrewCoffee.com and check it out and pick yourself up a bag today. Hello and welcome to the Truth From a Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 134. Today I'm joined by Garrett Benner, also known as the Modern Assassin, and we're covering East Coast bucks, sick of stag hunting, and filming. So stay tuned. What is going on out there? Happy Wednesday to everyone. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're feeling fine. It is, man, it is hot. I don't know what happened. I, I was actually getting a little, um, I don't know, maybe I, it was, it was, I was forlorn. Maybe that's not the right word. I was, I was starting to get primed for fall with some of the cooler weather that we had the past week or so. And I was allowing myself to begin to drift off toward, uh, you know, times where leaves are changing and things like that. And then mother nature just kind of punched me in the face this past weekend with a nice, uh, you know, uh, hot, humid, mid nineties degree day on Sunday, Monday, just as bad, if not worse. It looks like this coming weekend will be pretty nice though. But you know, as it, as it stands, I've been looking for a rainy day. It seems like I'm giving you like the rainy day camera trail camera check update every week. Cause I still have yet to get rain on a day that I could get out and check cameras, which is really kind of bumming me out because I think next weekend is going to have to be one of those make or break moments where regardless of whether or not I get any rain uh, in the forecast, there are just a handful of cams that I have to go check. Cause I've not, um, I've not looked at them or it's been so long since I've looked at them that I need to transition them. Um, and I'm really kind of hoping I get, I'm hoping I get some rain so I don't have to, you know, pull the, uh, pull the cross your fingers kind of, kind of move. But, um, nonetheless, you know, next week weekend is going to be likely be the weekend where I kind of check on a few things and make the final tweaks and, 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 uh, camera moves and so forth. Maybe some mock scrapes in the areas that I'm able to do mock scrapes, uh, before the season starts. Cause if I don't get to it next weekend, it's like the following weekend is, um, my daughter's birthday. And then we're, you know, then we're, of course we're in September and here on their Eastern, Eastern part of the state, which means then I'm just a handful of weeks, like two ish, you know, maybe three, uh, it's the 21st, our season opens here on the Eastern part of the state. So then I'm, I'm really kind of up against the season and I don't really want to be walking through there if I can at all help it. So I need to, I need to try to make hay this, uh, this coming weekend. But, uh, this past week I, I, I hadn't, I didn't get a lot, uh, I didn't get much into whitetail stuff this past weekend. What I did do was I had a, a rest malfunction on my bow. Um, and so I, I, I managed to fix that. And then in doing so, I figured I needed to probably paper tune my bow just to make sure I was still in, uh, you know, everything was still, still dialed in the way it needed to be. And, uh, Greg, of course, my, the bow hunting fiend, who is my, my bow guru was on vacation. So if I wanted to do any shooting, I kind of had to figure it out myself. So I did a quick, uh, if you followed the Instagram stories, I did a quick, um, uh, I guess a down and dirty DIY paper tuning, uh, set up here. I had some old PVC pipe that was laying around the house and had some PVC tees and I actually got myself a roll of paper and, uh, put it together. I probably took like all of 20 minutes. I don't know why it's taken me this long to do that. Uh, it was kind of fun to do. And now I was able to get my bow at least paper tuned and, and shooting well, and then went outside and shot 
you know, in my backyard, I can shoot out to about 35 yards. So shooting out to that and, uh, that distance and the bow is shooting well and, and seemed to be dialed back in. So, so that was good. We'll break it out here at the range in the course of the next couple of weeks. And, uh, and fling at a little further distance just to make sure everything's is good. But it seems to be, seems to be shooting well. And then I have uh, an arrow build that I need to do for the season, which I think I mentioned in the last podcast, uh, but I haven't yet got around uh, to doing that. Uh, but the one thing I do want to mention, I'm not going to belabor this up front a whole lot here, but there is one uh, piece of housekeeping. I do want to mention it's on behalf of the QDMA, the quality deer management association. Um, and wanted to make sure I passed along this information. I know that one of the things I've talked about a lot, um, and I think everyone in the hunting community has talked about is just about hunter recruitment in general. Um, you know, I know I looked at the Pennsylvania doe tag, um, availability just this, this weekend. And, you know, I know when I was growing up, like finding a doe tag was like, I mean, you might even put in in the first round of doe tag drawing and not get a doe tag. Um, and it seems like there's a lot of doe tags that are available. And I don't know if that's, you know, I know that they increased the numbers a little bit from last year. Um, but you know, I have, I, I'm, uh, I'm trying to figure out how to say this. I, I, I'd be hard pressed to think that, that, that part of the reason that there's so many tags still available is that we have fewer hunters in, in, uh, you know, buying tags. Um, you know, I, there's, I don't have any hard data on that, but it just stands the reason that if we see a dip in, in hunter numbers in general, generally speaking, likely you'd see, you know, numbers dip whenever it comes to purchasing those doe tags. So in that spirit in hunter recruitment spirit, the QDMA actually has partnered with the John Hines national wildlife Re- uh, refuge, which is around here in Philadelphia. It's, um, in, t- uh, Tinicum, I think is how you say it. Um, it's down actually near or in South Philadelphia. I want to say it's close to the airport. And what they're doing in partnership with them is they're actually opening up that refuge uh, for a limited public, you know, recreational archery hunting program. Um, this will all occur, of course, during the course of the Pennsylvania archery deer season, and it'll be managed by the U S fish and wildlife service. And, um, you know, what the refuge is hoping to do is really kind of provide, you know, a quality education and an outdoor experience through this program, uh, for youth and adults who may not have had the opportunity to hunt elsewhere. So this would be a great, a great opportunity. If you have a person who maybe would like to get into hunting and maybe you don't have a place to take them that might be suitable for them, this would be a nice kind of controlled environment, um, in a refuge where I'm just going to be honest with you, there are some hammered deer in those places because a lot of those places haven't been able to be hunted for a very long time. So, um, I think it would be a really cool thing for, you know, not just the youth to take out, but like, even if there's an older adult hunter that wants to get out in an archery setting, um, I think it's crossbow only, if I'm not mistaken, I think is, is what it is. Don't hold me to that, but here's some of the important information to know if this is something you're interested in doing, um, to apply or register, your hunter, and I think you have to rent register as like a as a as a mentor potentially too. You apply at fws.gov backslash Heinz. So that's fws.gov backslash H E I N Z. And you have to do that by August 30th in order to be part of the whole the whole deal. So with that, there are a handful of dates that are important to kind of know, and I'll pass these along here. And I'm actually going to just read them so I don't get them so I don't get them messed up. Um, so, hunter, hunter, uh, archery hunt days registration is required, as I mentioned, Saturday, October fifth. They haven't uh, solidified a time yet. This will be uh, an archery orientation and skills assessment, um, and then Wednesday, October 9th uh, through Saturday, October twelfth, will be the hunt. Uh, scenario number one 
And then Wednesday, October 23rd through Saturday, October 26th is the hunt number two. There'll be, you know, staff and partners there on on hand at the refuge, uh, at the wildlife refuge uh, area to help kind of teach, you know, and mentor some of the hunters that are coming in. There's one other uh, important date here or two other sets of important dates I want to pass along. So Saturday, August 24th, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. is the intro to archery and hunting. So if you have a mentor who's never done any of this before, this would be a great thing to take them to after you register so they kind of get oriented with some of the gear and some of the approaches to to hunting in general. Saturday, September 21st, 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., it's a youth hunter education training. Uh, the Pennsylvania Game Commission will be at the Refuge Center, and the registration is absolutely required for this. And then Saturday, September 28th, uh, this is a an archery event at Philly Fall Nature Fest. So a lot of cool stuff going on. Uh, QDMA is helping put this on, and this is part of their Field to Fork program. So if you have a youth hunter or an adult hunter or that a potential hunter that someone wants to get into the, uh, into archery hunting, this would be a great opportunity to take them, um, and get them, uh, initiated and, uh, registered and, um, just get them familiar with the outdoors in a different way. I think it's a really cool thing to do. Hopefully I'm going to be able to make one or two of these dates. Um, you know, other, some ob- other prior obligations, <clears throat> wedding, uh, during hunting season <clears throat> who gets married in October. I don't know. Um, but hopefully I'll be able to make a date or a date or two of these to, 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 to lend a hand, but regardless, make sure you keep those dates in mind, get registered and, uh, take a new hunter hunting, add to the numbers. Uh, so with that, I think we'll go ahead and not belabor this any longer. We will just go ahead and jump right in. Got a cool show today with the modern assassin. He's from Maryland, a fellow East coast, uh, bow hunter here. And, uh, he's just an interesting guy, man. I really enjoy uh, talking to Garrett. Um, he's got a different approach and outlook on things, which I think is pretty refreshing. And we'll cover all that in this session. So thanks guys for listening. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the truth from the stand deer hunting podcast. And today I have a, a fellow that I've known for known of for a while, I guess I should put it that way. I've been following him, uh, kind of, uh, through the creeper lens of social media. We've got a bunch of mutual friends, we actually ran into each other face to face in Harrisburg for the first time this year, uh, which was super rad. And it's been a long time coming having this gentleman on, but I'm joined by none other than the East Coast, the Beast Coast's very own Garrett Benner. What's going on, brother? What's happening, man? AKA also known as the uh, the Modern Assassin, man. What's happening? Uh, what's happening in Maryland, dude? Uh, just getting back to Maryland, dude. Uh, I was actually up. Up a little further up the East Coast over the weekend, I went up for uh, D Rock's wedding. That's so, right, man. Uh, he got he got all hitched up, didn't he? He did. He did. Um, he did well, and uh, I'm not sure what she was thinking, but wish him the best. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a it's like a wedding and a funeral all at the same time. Oh, <laughs> uh, I, I tell you though, man, it it was an absolute blast. Um. It was. They both have really great families, really great friends, and nice. uh, they, the the wedding was awesome. It was a really good time. That's awesome. So uh, I'm I'm sure there was some debauchery that was going going on there. Did he maintain throughout the night, or uh, or did uh, or did the evening get away from him, so to speak? No, nah, he 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 did well. There was definitely a lot of shabining going on. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know anything about D Rock? You know yeah. that that's how it was going down. But yeah, it was a good time. He was all good. Nice. <laughs> he stayed pretty straight. Nice, nice. That's good, man. I, 
I need to shoot him a text. I mean, I, I gave him a congratulatory, you know, what's up on uh, on social media, but I probably need to shoot him a text. Are they were they splitting for like a honeymoon or go, getting all of a sudden we turned this in from a hunting podcast to like a, a lifestyle wedding planner podcast? But it, were they <laughs> were they were they splitting for a honeymoon right away or were they taking some time before they take off? Because I don't want to text him if he's if he's already out, you know, enjoying himself. No, they uh. They, they're in that they have some things going on. Um, you know, they've been busy with the wedding, obviously, but right. hunting season's also about to start. Uh, she has some things going on in her career. So they are, uh, kind of planning it out. They're not taking off right away. I'm actually trying to just convince them both to come down since they don't have a plan, come down this weekend and shoot some fish. But nice. uh, D rocks all about it, but I'm not sure if the bride's up for it yet. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I always think it's a good move to kind of take a chill. I mean, that's what, uh, the, the wife and I did. We waited a couple months before we took off on our, on our, uh, honeymoon. It just seems to make sense to me. Cause it's, I don't know, man, like getting married, like the whole process of it. And I'd be the first to admit, like I didn't do shit for it except show up. And it was stressful enough. I can't imagine like the bride doing the planning, you know, that they do a lot of the planning, at least, you know, it's the, that stress. And then trying to plan a, a vacation, huge vacation honeymoon at the same time. It's like, I don't know about that. So I think it's probably wise and it's nice and convenient that hunting season is right around the corner. So it kind of gives you a good reason to say, you know what, babe, we should probably just hold off on that. Well, if you find yourself a girl that'll let you pack your bow to the honeymoon, uh, that that's a good one. Man, you ain't <laughs> lying, dude. You, and so it's uh, I was trying. My wife's been trying to sell me on a. No, I shouldn't say sell me. We've been kicking around the idea of doing like a Hawaii vacation because I'm not much of a beach dude. You know, I like I like vacations where we go do some hiking, outdoor stuff, maybe get on the water a little bit, you know, th- those types of things. I'm not so much into going adventure. To yeah. Yeah. You know, I, mean, I have a family, so I can't get too wild, but this year it was, you know, Portland, Maine for a couple of days. Cause my wife and daughter really wanted to check out that city and um, eat some good food. And then we went to Acadia national forest for a couple of days. So we spent some time, you know, around the water and doing some hiking and stuff like that, which was super rad. But she was talking to me about a Hawaii trip and I was like, you know what? I was like, I could do a Hawaii trip. And she's like, really? And I was like, yeah. exactly, dude. I was like, that's <laughs> like, there's a lot of great hunting around there. And they're like all over the place. I was like, I would love to do like a trip to Lanai and do some hunting or something like that. So she was actually game for Axis it. Axis deer and big boar. That's right, man. The other one we've been kicking around was a Montana trip where I was like, you know what? We could do a family Montana trip, but it has to be at the beginning of September. And she was like, oh, we can get down with that. And I was like, we could do a week with you guys and you guys could leave and I'll stay in an additional week and I'll hunt elk and mule deer. Everyone wins. You know, I was going to say, I think you, uh, I, I'm not positive on this, but I think in Montana, you can, uh, catch that early season where you can get a muley or a whitetail still in velvet. Uh, yes, you can. I think, think i forget when their mule season i'm pretty comes sure in. it's one of the states that opens up early enough that you got a, a a small window but a chance to get them in velvet yeah i think you're right because i mean when i went out there it was i want to say it was like the second week of september i think so everything was hard horn by that point that we were that we were hunting or at least the muleys that i gotcha. saw and had, had an opportunity at so but i think you're right i think they do come in early enough that you do have like a week opportunity there that you might be able to get it in, is a short window yeah yeah, yeah. same thing I'll with tell like, you what man go ahead if you you got uh where we we met yeah you mentioned we met at harrisburg it was at uh was it the spartan booth uh it was the uh i was hanging out with the, the boys from exodus exodus yes yeah. yes yeah um 
Uh, have you got your trail cams out this year? Oh yeah, yeah, they're they're, they're out. I'm trying to resist the urge to uh, check them as we speak. I've I've got two that I left out and uh, just pulled uh, right before a big rainstorm, and uh, I I got a decent one showing up. Yeah. Um, but it, it's one of them bucks that uh, I'm pretty sure he's a three year old. He he's an eight point. He's an absolute stud. But I think he's three. He's one of them that if he goes another year, he's going to be a giant. Nice. If, uh, if I happen to be down there and I have myself, uh, in, in camera and I have him in camera and everything's all good and filming with my new setup this year, um, three or not, he, he, he's going to get dropped. He's going to eat some carbon. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My other camera. Um, of course it's all set up, check everything is all good. Walk away. And you know, it took like two pictures and then shit out. Right. Um, <laughs> you were saying those cameras are the ones that give five year warranty, correct? Yeah, man. Those guys, I mean, they do it right, dude. You know, they're, they're good dudes and their cameras are just rock solid. Like I keep, I, you know, anyone time that someone asks me about it, it's like I left, I left one camera that I had and I, I pulled it out. I think for the first time this year, I think I had it in the timber for almost it was at least two years. It might've been three years straight that I never pulled it out and it worked. No never, all I ever did was change cameras. Like, or I'm sorry, change uh, batteries once every six months ish. You know what I mean? I would usually no put fresh ones in at the beginning of the year. And then once we got on the backside of like the season, you know, uh, I would usually throw another set in like, over the winter just so I knew I had enough battery to get through the winter. And then I was usually pretty solid until, until the spring, you know, and I've never, Knock on wood, you know, I've never had a problem problem with them. They're rock solid and, you know, ants, no ants, whatever. I had ants all through it and like it still worked and took pictures. So, um, you know, not only that, but it's like, you know, for anyone who's hunting public land, it's like they, you know, they, they give you 50% off if someone jacks your, jacks your camera in the timber, which nobody does that. So. Yeah. Which is pretty crazy. That That's awesome. Yeah. And I remember, like I said, that five-year warranty, because I remember thinking as much as I spend on these cameras that take shit pictures, take work half of the time, corrupt the memory card the other half of the time, yep. and then don't fucking work after a single season. Yep. It's, uh, you know, <laughs> that was, you get what you pay for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that was the bane of my existence for a while, man. It's like I was going through the same thing, you know, before I, I met Chad and those guys. It was just, I was getting a set of, you know, cameras and, you know, maybe I'd get five or six of them. And then by the end of the year, it's like, you know, going into the following year, it's like two of them might kind of work that I would trust, you know, and I was, you know, buying a couple more. And so it was just one of those things where it was, you know, there's nothing, nothing worse than doing all your scouting and, you know, prep, especially if it's on a new piece that you just aren't real familiar with, which for me is a lot of the time what I'm dealing with, you know, it's uh cause for whatever reason I jump around on pieces, you know, it seems like every year, um, you know, and I don't know a lot about the, the, the property and I'm really counting on the camera to tell me what caliber of deer are there. So I can kind of formalize my plan as, you know, fall kind of gets here and stuff. And if, if one of those die or just take a crap, it's uh you know, it's a little disheartening because then you don't know what to, it's like, I don't know if that property's in play or if it's not in play, you know, other than like knowing the sign that I saw whenever I was scouting in the, uh, in the winter, but yeah, man, a good camera's worth its weight in gold. That's for sure. Yeah, and, you know, uh, and like you said, you're resisting to go pull them. Yeah. Um, you know, you want to leave them sit out there. So when when you leave them sit and soak for a long time and then you find out, oh, shit, it ain't done nothing for the past couple months. It's <laughs> yeah. like you missed all that inventory. Yeah. And, you, you know, there's just 
there's certain periods of the year, uh, yeah. whether it be from travel or crop planting or whatever it may be, um, the seasonal change, whatever, there's just certain times deer are in certain areas or not. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of the places I had trail cams early, it's now just a wall of corn. Yeah. You know, so when I had that camera out there and it wasn't working and not doing shit for me, you know, it's not like, oh, well, I can set it back up. No, I, I missed my opportunity at that. So, yeah, yeah like you said, it, it's definitely worth the investment. Yeah, yeah, no doubt, man. It's uh, it, and it, like you said, I'm resisting right now going out and checking. I got a couple. Like you mentioned, you got you know you got that eight pointer that you kind of got your eye on that you that you're hoping you might run into this year. There's you know there's one property in particular, and you know people have heard me talk about this before, so I'll keep it brief. But there's a a new piece of public that I checked out that I had good sign on, hung a camera where I thought I should. You know, it was I mean I was reading the sign, but I was I just stepped foot on the property this past winter, so it wasn't like I had any information about the property. I was just like you know this seems like a good spot, hung a camera and. Uh, Sure enough, a big deer, like by, I think it was June 30th, like he was already, like you could already tell he was big. And then he had a big old yeah. paunch belly and a sway in his back. Like looking at him, you're, you're, you're going like, he's four and a half, you know what I mean? Like, but the thing was, is like this property is just as the crow flies about a mile away from the swamp that I hunted last year. And I had a deer on camera in there that was about. He was, he was, if he wasn't 150, he was all butt. You know, he was, he was a big deer and big old paunch belly swaying his back. And so I scouted this other piece of public because, like, I lost him partway through the year last year. Like, as soon as, like, our season around here on the east, eastern part of PA comes in, I think this year it's like the 21st of September. So it's like midish September is when it comes in. Gotcha. Um, by like, yeah. like, by like the first, second week of October, like, he was, he had disappeared. I never saw him again, never got a, another picture of him, like nothing. And a deer that big, like you would have heard, especially around this area, like you would have heard if someone shot, if someone killed him. Um, and, uh, and he just disappeared. And so I started scouting this other piece of public. Cause I thought maybe I was like, maybe he, he wandered over there. I was like, I don't know. You know, it's not that far away. And so I went over and started checking. I just found hammer sign, dude, just like big rubs. And I know big rubs don't necessarily mean big deer, but you know, when you see a rub and you're like, that wasn't a small deer that made that, that had to be a mature deer just by like the sheer power it took to tear that tree apart. You know what I mean? For sure. And, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So I saw that and I was like, all right, there's a good deer in here and I don't know if it's him or not. I was like, but I'm going to set some cameras up and see if I can figure it out. And that's the deer I got on camera. I know it's the one that's making that sign. You know, I'd, I'd put money on it. He just didn't at that point have enough characteristics in his rack for me to tell if it's the one from the swamp I saw last year or if this is a completely different deer. So, gotcha. um, and I haven't been back to check the camera now. Cause it's like, I know there's a good deer in there. I'm just waiting for a rainstorm to go in and see if I can get w a couple more images of him to go to basically identify him. You know what I mean? Cause if it's the same one then I basically know the two areas he's living in and I should have a pretty good chance at him this fall. So, well, and you know, his time of transition, which, correct. again, that, that, that can be a lot of different factors that can be weather factors and everything else. But your main time of transition, a lot of bucks, um, show up the same places, the same year, uh, every year, the same time. Yep. Um, and a lot of that has to do with, uh, crop rotation or harvest and everything like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, acorn drop, new food source, uh, new season, you know, yeah. if maybe that's when a rabbit season or a pheasant season comes in right before that. 
a lot of times that, you know, bumps a buck up out of his area and now pushes him to, to somewhere else. But yeah, knowing when a buck shows up in an area, um, my friends in Ohio, Keith, mm-hmm. uh, he, he's been on this buck. He calls West side, uh, cause he always comes in on a West wind. Nice. Um, but it's two years in a row now that he's shown up at the same time of year mm-hmm. and only on the West winds and then disappears the same time. So he basically, the deer would show up, you know, and a week or two later, he'd see the pictures of this deer showing up, go to hunt it and he's gone. And that happened two years in a row. So now he can kind of say, okay, instead of waiting until I get pictures of this deer, I know he has shown up at this date two years in a row. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be there this time, you know, yeah. not waiting for the inventory, but use the previous years to put it together. So right. knowing, you know, not only his two betting areas, but when he may be moving between them, yep. that may be your best chance to catch him. Uh, kind of, you may be able to catch him more off guard in between than as highly alert and fine tuned to his betting area as he probably is being a mature deer. Yeah. I, and the thing is, is like, I think if this is the deer that I saw last year, like, I don't know that I would even hunt him in the swamp because the swamp is it's killer. I mean, man, I had, I had at least three, well, through the course of the year last year, I had four shooters in this swamp and it's only 25 acres, the piece that I was hunting. And he, huh. he was the biggest one. There was two that went like, you know, they were in the thirties, you know, they were, they were, they were Pope and young. They were nice deer for the area. Solid Probably, deer. Yeah. yeah great, solid buck. Great, great bucks, especially for around this area. And then there was another one that showed up a little later in the year that I saw. And he was probably just barely Pope and young, crazy wide, not a lot of time length and not a lot of mass, super young deer. And I looked at him and I was like, good God, man, if that guy makes it like two more years, if he happened to like dodge, you know, I mean, where he's living, it's like he could make it another two years because he has a better chance to get hit by a car than killed by a hunter where he's living. Like, that's just the, the truth. Um, and if he would make it two more years, I'm like, geez, I was like, he, he would be a monster. You know what I mean? Cause his width is just insane. Like out past his ears is an understatement. You know what I mean? It's one of those deers where you look at him and it's like, you just say like the first thing you say is like, Jesus, man, look how wide that deer is. You know, like you don't even count it, the times. Uh, have you ever harvested an animal that you knew from a year prior? No, I have I not. I ask people this a lot because I know a lot of people that, um, you know, pass on a younger deer, you know, mm-hmm. and that, and I'm not saying, oh, only trophy hunter, whatever, but it, you know, it's just not the caliber of deer you're looking for. And it seems like more often than not, people that know these deer for several years, mm-hmm. they end up being a buck they know for several years, but can never really get one. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, um, it, it totally it, does. It's crazy how much they pattern the hunter too. Well, I was just going to say that, right? It's like you have to really be careful in learning a deer, how much he's learning about you at the same time. You know, like, I think, I think you're a hundred percent right. Cause I think they get to a point where it's like, they know this deer so well, but they've, they've had so many encounters that deers crossed their scent trail or had a visual or had a sound that spooked them in an area or whatever the case was that they just over time started recognizing, you know, you know, the pattern of the person that was hunting them. 
And so then they start avoiding these areas. And so it's like, I would venture a guess that a lot of these guys are probably having less and less frequent encounters and less and less inventory on their cameras. Even, you know what I mean? It's like, for, for me, I'll put it this way. It's like, you know, I know you live in Maryland and, you know, I'm in Pennsylvania and there's, there's a fair amount of hunting pressure around here, of course. Right. And so I don't typically try to hunt a specific buck every year. Um, I like to say I'm, I'm an equal opportunity, uh, slayer, if you will, <laughs> you know what I mean? If it's, <laughs> Absolutely. If, if it gets the blood pumping, I'm going to, I'm going to put an arrow in it. Um, you know, I of course want to try to kill a mature deer. That's kind of the goal every year, especially if I have mature deer around, I try to, you know, target one of the, of the, of the better deer that I have on camera or, or that I know at least is living in the areas that I'm hunting. Um, but I stopped. So there was one instance and, I, and I'll keep this story short because people listen to this podcast have heard it, but I hunted this deer lucky on one of our family farms back towards Pittsburgh. And I watched this deer literally, literally for three years. Um, he was just a nice rack six as like a, as like a two year old, um, you know, nothing crazy, but like, he just looked like a good up and coming young deer watched him that year. The second year he kind of blew up into like this wide seven point, like huge, but he had a really weird rack, some palmation and stuff like that in his, in his rack. Um, and I would have killed him that year, but he just disappeared. He got, he got, you know, I won't say he went nocturnal cause they always move in the daylight somewhere. He just wasn't moving in daylight on our property. Cause I was pretty sure at that point he was bedded on the neighbors. Um, and I was only really catching him at scrapes, but he would basically go nocturnal on our property from like the second week of October. And he would start showing up like right around, you know, dusk, just a little bit of shooting light left right whenever, you know, second archery season for us would come in, which is like the day after Christmas, like the 26th of December. And so I watched him that second year that I, or that first year that I really kind of hunted him and started putting puzzle pieces together. And I, I hunted him in late season, actually harder than I did during the rut or anything. And I ended up hunting him three days in a or four days in a row in like December 26th, 27th, 28th, and 29th, I think is what it was. And out of those four days, I had three encounters. And so from that point, it's like I had camera data on him. I had a couple of visual sightings. So then I put the puzzle pieces together and figured out where he was bedding. And then the following summer, I glassed him in a field and a couple of different times and saw how he was coming in and what wind he was using and what part of this field he was entering. And then from there, it's like I knew which pinch point he was using. So I told my father-in-law, I was like, I'm going to kill that deer opening day. I was like, if I get the right wind, I was like, I'm going to kill him opening day. He's like, nah, First you're not going to kill him. When you got the right wind. Yep. yep. And so it just so happened that we had one of those, like a storm blew through, a cold front came in, a nice high pressure system came in, like to push it out. Right. Got It was nice and chilly. And then, um, you know, I had the perfect wind for it. I set up where I thought it was going to be. I was in this, uh, I was in the tree maybe two hours and he came through, but what I didn't anticipate was he was still bachelored up and he was with another shooter that I had, that I'd seen or that I had on camera. And then a young spike kind of came up underneath my, underneath my tree and just kind of stood there and I had the perfect wind and he needed to step out maybe five more, five more yards. And I had a 25 yard broadside shot and then the wind switched on me and, uh, that buck that was underneath me caught a scent of me a little bit and just stiff legged and backed up and walked down the ridge. And that, and that big deer I was hunting just walked down after him. My buddy ended up shooting him. And, and that is why they bachelor group up. Yep, exactly. And, uh, I just didn't expect it, man. Cause that was the opening day. It was like October 3rd or something like that. I was like, you know, but you know, it, it's funny. I was, I was listening to, um, Barry Wenzel, like doing a speaking engagement, uh, on YouTube today as I was driving back and forth to work. And he was actually talking about that, just in how, 
deer use thermals, you know, in the mountains or in the ridges specifically where it's like, you know, you'll anticipate deer to move, you know, with the thermals where it's like in the morning they're rising. So they're going to walk up high so they can catch the thermals. And then in the evenings, they're going to probably want to, they want to jet down the side of the mountain to a food source before the thermals start dropping. So they still get that updraft of the thermal to catch the wind. But he was saying a mature buck actually will do the opposite of that. He will lay tight until the thermals start to fall and he'll use the deer that have already gone down the mountain to catch, to use the thermal to the food source as his decoy. And if they're out there feeding, he knows that it's safe to head down the mountain. So he'll head down the mountain using them as their canary in the mine shaft, so to speak. And then he'll use those th- dropping thermals coming over his back to scent check his ba- uh, scent check his six. And that's how they'll move. And I just never really thought of that until he said it. And I was like, you know what? I was like, no shit. I was like, it makes a lot of sense. And it's, it's interesting to watch. Um, now th- this story, this was from, this was from a long time ago. Um, I had crop damage permits for a farm mm-hmm. and, uh, was out summer it, out in summer, had a camera with me, you know, and it's when like the, the, the smallest camcorders are like the size of a fucking shoebox. Right. You know, <laughs> like a giant <laughs> hunk of shit. Right. It's got like six minutes battery life at most yeah. anyway. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I had one of them in the stand sitting next to me and I had, uh, I think I had a shotgun because with crop damage in Maryland, at least you, you, you're only allowed to take those. Right. And the mosquitoes got so insane that I literally lit a cigarette and stuck the, the filter like in the tree bark behind me (laughs) and put my head back (laughs) against the tree. So I just had a cigarette burning right next to each side of my head. (laughs) <laughs> to keep the mosquitoes off me. And literally a few minutes after I do this, and I'm two cigarettes just blazing right next to my face, I look over and here comes a young buck. And then I see a little bit further behind him another. And then I see a little bit further behind him a big deer. Mm-hmm. And this little year and a half, you know, year year and a half old buck just comes Barging, cracking branches, pushing through, walks out in the corn to where he's literally just breaking corn stalks over and just just did not give a shit about anything. I mean, just it's like walking out into traffic without looking both ways. There was just no no thought to it. Uh, The second deer was a little more mature. It was probably a two and a half. It may even been a three and a half. This was a long time ago, so I ain't going to call an age on it, but little bit mature deer. He got to the edge of the field and they are right under me. Um, which it, it still amazed me that they, they didn't smell the cigarette smoke, but he was right under me and he sat there and he looked both ways for a while. And he probably had caught something of me coming in more than anything. Right. And he took his time and very slowly then walked out and kind of hurried across the little tractor path gap and then slipped into the corn very quietly. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy 
with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives, we've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. And then the bigger deer, the big mature deer, he stopped and watched that other buck sitting there below me for a while. And that buck, it probably took him 10 minutes for him to move another 10 feet forward. Mm -hmm. And then another 10 minutes to move another 10 feet forward. And then he just turned around and went back into the woods. (laughs) But you could really just see the, the level of maturity in how careful they were to expose themselves, how careful they were into what they were walking into, um, and watch the maturity level of the deer watching the deer prior to them and yeah. their reaction. Yep. Um, it was, it was kind of a very cool early lesson that I learned firsthand about, uh, maturity and just, um, you know, how a lot of times where you're seeing most of the deer sign, I find a lot of times you find that trail or that path that's just a little bit further off the heavy yeah. deer sign. And a lot of times that's where you find less but bigger deer sign. Yep. Um, you know, they don't use the same trail to skirt the field and wind it. They're using the trail that's 10, 15 yards from the trail the other deer are using to skirt mm-hmm. not only the field but that trail. Yep. Um and a lot of times to skirt it, those skirt the deer too to keep away from the social pressure. You absolutely. Know, yeah. It's funny you mentioned that because Well, it, and that's one of the things you were saying about, you know, surprised that that buck um was still in a bachelor group at that time. And you know, I've really tried to kind of I don't know. I'm just fucking analytical in anything I do. Anything I do, I, I try to figure out, is there a correlation to what's going on? Is this random? Is there something to learn from here? Is there something to remember? And it it really seems to me that it depends. It, it's almost like an individuality thing. Mm-hmm. Um, like some bucks are, are just loners. Some are just more irritable um but i've kind of noticed that it seems like you know i i I at first thought the bigger deer the bigger mature deer they're going to want to get away from the younger ones and the other deer earlier yeah and now i'm not sure i believe that because a lot of times i do see bigger deer still bachelored up and i almost feel like it's they they've been through it before you know this isn't their first party this yeah. isn't the first rut they're entering into. It's not their first keg party. They know they're not going to walk right into the keg party when the door's open and they're going to find chicks ready to party. Right. They know shit's got to go on for a while and the night's got to go. And then you start making your moves to figure things out. And they know what it's closing time is when you clean up. Yep. <laughs> you know what yep. I mean? <laughs> they know it's when they're kicking everyone out. That's when they're going to go find their girl to go home. Right. So, and I feel like these big mature bucks are the same way. They, they're not going to get into the mix. They're not going to really start a fight. If, if they got a buddy around cool, they know they're not putting any pressure on them yet. But once it's time, they, they become the, you know, obviously the more aggressive and there's just no playing around. Yeah. I think you're right, man. I think, you know, I think a lot of it's your, 
to point, you know, the earlier point you make, which is just, you know, the personality of the deer, right. And what you, the only way you figure that stuff out is just by observation. And I think you, Absolutely. you made a good point about watching that deer and seeing how to, how a more mature deer was going to, was going to act in that situation. Cause I know for me, you know, missing out on that big deer that I, that was, you know, two and a half, maybe three seasons ago now that I had that big deer that I had patterned and knew what was up and just couldn't seal the deal, you know, cause a, a little pecker head blew it up for me. Um, watching him and learning him like over the course of a couple of years and then a couple encounters and then not going my way and figuring out like exactly what you're saying, which is like, man, he's, he's, he's using a buddy, like he's using a, a canary in the mine shaft to keep him, to keep him safe until it's until prime time's ready, you know? And so he, he, his personality was, Hey, I'm cool hanging with the dudes until it's, until it's prime time. And once prime time comes exactly. then I'm, and then I'm going to split. But right now in October, you know, early October, I'm not ready to kick these guys out yet. You know, and then well, and it, it's kind of like you know you you you've heard the saying like oh I don't need to outrun a bear I just need to outrun the slowest person right you know <laughs> I feel like the big bucks are the same way like uh the it kind of the younger the younger and the dumber dude that I'm hanging out with the more chance that he's going to get popped right the more chance he's going to expose himself or get into trouble and the more chance I'm going to have to get away it's I. I almost feel like they know the younger, dumber ones are going to make the mistake or, or for instance, that younger, younger, less mature deer chose a different path than you. Right. Maybe I'm sure you set up in the way that was strategic for the way those bucks were using that wind. Yeah. Well, that young buck kind of just being careless, not properly checking and using the wind and just kind of carelessly moving maybe what put him in position to actually alert that deer in the first place. Yeah. Well, you know, so it's kind of like them young bucks almost act as a satellite deer yeah. in a way because they're just kind of aimless. Yeah. Um, 100% man. I mean, he was, it was, he was dead for, he was dead for probably 10 minutes if I wanted to kill him. You know what I mean? Like he, he came in on the, I mean, he wasn't coming in on the, on the trail system that I had kind of pinpointed, right? He was coming in a little bit off of it. Um, but he was like the, the mature deer were working like a true crosswind. You know what I mean? It was what they were working. They were checking, they were checking the field. This dude was coming from the bottom of this, of this hollow up. So he was actually down in where the wind's kind of swirling. I'm surprised actually he didn't catch my scent a little earlier than he did. Um, but it was not the safest route for him to come in. The, the more mature deer were sticking closer to the cover because it's kind of along the top of this ridge. It's just really nasty thick, and there's just a couple open open spots to get shot opportunities. But he was coming from an area that was just, like, wide open. Like, I heard him, and I saw him coming from – like, I knew he was there and saw him way before I saw the two mature deer. Like, probably gotcha. 10, probably yep, 10 that, minutes before Exactly, because they're careless. They're yep. careless. Yeah. Um. But, uh, and what's crazy is all these factors that we're talking about and everything, um, none of it is necessarily certain. No. You know, that that's the great part about whitetail hunting is these aren't robots. Yep. These aren't, uh, and I, I will be the first to admit, I kind of fell into this trap myself in the mentality thinking of, a white tail is a white tail is a white tail that, you know, oh, well, deer don't get up and feed at this time. Well, guess what? If that deer got bumped out of his bedding spot early because the neighbor let their dog out and he had to move, well, now he's going to be up and moving somewhere. Right. You, you know, nothing is certain. Um, 
and they're individuals. And, and that, that's what keeps it interesting. If, if it was as easy as always picking a wind and, and a time and a moon and, and a weather pattern, I mean, all those are certainly factors to help you. That's why we obviously take them into account, but nothing certain, man. Right. That's why, that's why there's a lot of people that have them deer from year to year. They have on camera and they can never play it together. Yep. Even though that deer, they may have the most information on. Yep. hundred percent, man. I mean, I think, I mean, I think the biggest thing for me in terms of like, you know, I agree with you. I mean, I think, and it's the thing that I think that I love most about whitetail hunting is like every year it's different. And every year is an opportunity to learn and get a little bit better than you were the year before. And you try your damn just in the off season to scout and, you know, have conversations like you and I are having now and learning from, from buddies that, that you look up to and, you know, and just pick people's brains and see how they hunt differently in different places. Is there something I can take from them and, and, and apply it? But it's like, I feel like, I feel like that, that deer I didn't kill. I think that that was one of like the milestones that, um, I think it did two things for me. There were two specific instances and in hunts that like, for me, like, I don't want to say changed my hunting trajectory necessarily, but it, it was, uh, they were big milestones. I think for me, one was that deer that I was patterning and trying to hunt and kill because I've, I've literally put all the puzzle pieces together. And that was probably the first deer and the first time that I strategically was like, this is the deer I'm going to hunt and this is how I'm going to kill him. And I actually put it all together, right? Everything happened except releasing the arrow. So failed hunt. Absolutely. Yes. And I'm not necessarily into moral victories. Right. But for me making the switch from like a hunter to me, that was like truthfully, like when I felt like I, I became a bow hunter, right? Because I had to put myself in the right position. I mean, I was hunting with a bow previously, but it, like to me, like my mindset had shifted to like that of a bow hunter finally. You know what I mean? And then the sec- I, I 100% agree and can, I mean, I have kind of the same story. I, uh, I found where I knew a buck was going in and out and I knew he had this kind of small bedding area where there was, uh, a bunch of blowdowns. Um, some trees had fallen and some thicker shit was growing up and I knew he was using this area. I ended up parking my truck way, way, way further back. Didn't, you know, I had stands set on this property, but I parked way far away, took my climber and climbed up and I watched this buck come in, bed down at 30 yards. And he bedded with his, his facing directly toward me. Mm-hmm. And he was slightly uphill and I just could not move for literally 30, 35 minutes. And he stood up, he walked my way. I grabbed my, grabbed my bow. I put the camel on, drew my bow back, put the pin right on his heart. And then I let the bow down. It, it was a smaller seven point. It wasn't the deer I was after, but the same thing to me, that was a victory. I yep. figured, I figured that spot out. I didn't know the deer using it. Yep. I just knew that a buck was in there. He was using it. I knew he was using it at that time too, because of the fresh sign. I went the extra mile, literally carrying the stand and parking way further away. And I put myself in position and I was drawn back ready to release. Yep. So yeah, it, it wasn't bloody, but yeah, that moral victory. I mean, it is kind of a, a merit badge of, okay, I, um, I leveled up in this game a little bit. Right. And what it does too, man, it's like, and this is the biggest thing for me, like going forward. And I've talked about this at different times, but it's like, for me, it's, now I feel like for me, most specifically, it's, it's a, you know, it's like, you know, Greg Litzinger, right? Bow hunting fiend. 
Yeah. You know, Greg. I'm yeah. familiar with him. Yeah. yeah. It's like it, we live pretty close together and we, we talk a lot. He's on the show a, a fair amount. And, um, you know, it's, you know, we were talking the other day when we were driving, we were, you know, we went and shot some bows and we were just kind of talking about what you and I are discussing now. And, you know, and he was like, you know, you're at the point where it's like, he's like, you just need like the, the, the hours in the tree now to like put all the stuff together that, you, that, you know, you know, like you need to see it play out. And then he's like, once you get more of that, he was like, that's when you see the big, the big jump, you know what I mean? Cause I've started seeing these incremental pieces where it's like, yeah, that buck I figured out. And then the next one was, I went to Ohio on a piece of public land and I speed scouted it for like a day in the summer, you know, and then went back in November and in three days killed a nice Pope and young deer and had, and blew a shot opportunity the day prior to killing that one on a, on a bigger deer. Um, but it was those two encounters taught me a lot. And then it was like, I got more confidence because I went to a foreign piece of ground. I figured it out in three days, put a deer on the ground, you know what I mean? And then you know, and it just seemed like from there, you know, I was, tr- I was starting to trust what I was seeing, you know what I mean? That I understood and was interpreting things correctly. And it's like, and basically since that point, it's like, I've got on better deer, I've had better encounters and it's been consistently, you know, consistent basically since then. Um, you know, and so it's just one of those things now that I think what I'm trying to work on more than anything is, you know, um, getting to the point to where I trust myself in reading hot sign. Cause I still have a habit of like wanting to scout an area, making a plan and then starting to work that plan where now what I want to start doing is like scout an area, make a general plan, kind of still hunt my way through, be confident enough to maybe go in a little after daylight so I can see, especially if I'm not super familiar with a piece, find the hot sign, set up and hunt the hot sign. You know what I mean? Agreed. And, and myself personally, um, I kind of went through what I consider now to be almost a regression in my whitetail hunting. And what I mean by that is when I first started, um, a lot of it was public land. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, it, I'm talking about bell hunting. I did a little bit of shotgun hunting, the traditional yep. opening day, get up with grandpa, go sit out in the sure. woods and pretty much if it's brown, it's down. Bam. Right. Um, so, but as far as bow hunting and learning whitetails and everything, a lot of my first encounters and lessons were all on public land. And I really didn't have much of a mentor of any type. Mm-hmm. And I, but I've always been wood savvy and just kind of in tune with animals. And I did, I did pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I got out of college and I moved back to, you know, where I went to high school and everything. I knew some farmers, uh, family knew some, some people with, uh, farms and land that I could hunt, things like that. And so when I went into these pieces, it's almost like, like you think of it as it's now almost like public land and a mobile hunt because it's all new, right? It's all kind of fresh. And I did very well. And I then, you know, through, you know, at this time, there was really no internet. It's books and magazines and and, and your your Drury videos, (laughs) and that's about it. You know, VHS tapes. (laughs) Some Betamax. (laughs) So I went from to, okay, well, my mentality shifted from, okay, well, 
now I got to make the property even better to put the deer right here and to have better deer and this and that. And it took me years to really realize that in a lot of ways I was fucking shit up. Um, I'm now putting a more constant pressure on the property by trying to monitor it. Mm. Um, and, and like I said, a lot of this was years ago when you didn't have the trail cams you have now and everything. Um, there certainly wasn't any cellular cams, but I mean, it, it, it took a while and I really pigeonholed myself into having preset everywhere mm-hmm. to, okay, this is the wind. Well, what do I have for that? Okay, this is the time of year. I'm going here. And I pretty much got away from the, the mobile hunting, from the scout and hot sign setup. I went more into taking prior year encounters and inventory and, you know, doing what they say on on pretty much every publication is all, well, you just look at the wind, you look at the moon, you look at the weather pattern and you sit in the pinch and voila. And (laughs) yeah. And you know, and and I, 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 like I said, now I look at that as a kind of regression in my whitetail hunting, um, and it took me a while to get past that. And a lot of what changed that again was when I started to go hunting for sick of deer. Mm, um, because once I started going hunting for sick of deer, I don't have any land for that. Well, private land for that is heavily coveted. Mm. And so it was, well, I'm going to go out and not only find the hot sign, but I mean, I got to learn the fucking species too. It's like at least right. whitetail. If you go to a property, you can read whitetail sign. You kind of right. know what it means, and you can put the pieces together. But now I'm on public, new places, new species. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think you know, for me, I was in a, a similar boat. Like once I started kind of heavily hunting, you know, public versus our private property. I, I, that was when I started seeing you know, I started seeing my personal growth when I, when I was doing that, cause I was forced to your point, I was forced to hunt mobile to where now I even hunt like, you know, when I go back home to hunt, we have two pieces back home, two family pieces. The one I really don't hunt much anymore, unless there's just something outstanding on it. The other piece, I usually throw a couple hunts at it. It's usually actually when I'm traveling to Ohio, I'll stop, stop off there. Cause it's along the way and I'll hunt there for like three days before I head to Ohio for like a week and a half. Um, but I actually even hunt that the same way I hunt that I hunt public. I have cameras on it. They've been out since end of May. I think I have yet to check them. Uh, I'll check them like the beginning of September. And then I basically just go on and do all hanging hunts, like on every hunt, every hunt that I would, that I would do there. And I mean, it was kind of a necessary evil, you know, and I'm curious about your perspective on this. Cause I want to get a sense of some of the terrain that you're hunting, you know, and in the places that you're hunting, but what I started doing more so in, in, in later and probably maybe more recently realized I wasn't uh, so, so crazy for doing it because I was reading this book that kind of suggested it is I stopped hunting the deer on this property specifically. And I've kind of adopted this like when I hunt public as well. And I started hunting terrain versus the deer. Um, because in PA, as that's you, your only constant, right? Because in PA it's, you know, I can't, you know, I'm likely not going to see a deer year over year because he's probably not going to make it. 
you know what I mean? So banking on using a data around a specific deer, if I get two years to try to kill a certain deer, that's, that's rare for me. You know what I mean? Even on private, it's rare for me. So, well, and, and one of the reasons I think I haven't killed many deer that I have experience with prior is a perfect example is one of the farms very close to me. They, they were busted with, uh, an AR in the combine and, and the Jeez. department of natural resources recovered over 90 dead deer. Jeez. Um, so, and they're just shooting them out of the yeah. combine and mostly gut shooting them. So they run off into the woods and then die. Right. So that's how many they found. So how long have they been doing this and to how many deer? And I actually had a guy run in a combine tell me that the biggest deer he's ever seen his brother shot out of a combine in full velvet Jeez. about a hundred yards from my house in, in the field. You know, um, there's a lot of foxhound hunting, like mm-hmm. running, running fox with hounds up here. So it, like you're saying, I'm not looking for a deer from year to year, but I know pockets and terrain features that, they either feel safe or it gives them advantages to where, you know, I, I look at it like this. If you have a neighborhood and money was no object, the baddest motherfucker in the neighborhood is always going to live in the mansion on top of the hill. Right. And as soon as something happens to him, the next most badass around is the one that's going to take over the mansion on the hill. Right. And that's the way it is in the whitetail world. Yeah. Um, so again, yeah, it's, it's looking at, uh, those terrain features and that's what I've been doing now that I've really dove back into public and, and hardly, that's one of the reasons I'm not running many cameras. Yep. I feel like I'm going to go to my private pieces when I maybe don't have the time or the weather's right, or just because it's, you know, familiar and I do yep. enjoy some of those places a lot. Uh, but I kind of already know it. I know where to go in. So I'm spending most of my time public. And very first thing I do is I pull out a map and I'll look at, okay, where do I see agriculture, if there is any? Mm-hmm. And then the very next thing is I'm looking at topo and water. Yep. Um, you know, the, the ridges and everything else, but then water as well. And I'm doing, before I ever set foot on a property, I'm picking out the spots I want to look specifically by that topo, you know, and, and the terrain, like you were saying, because the terrain is a constant. Yep. It's a constant from this year to 10 years from now, those deer. Yep. Um, and the way the weather and the wind and everything works and it influence their movement, that's going to be almost the only thing that's going to be constant from now to then. Right. Well, and, and it, when you have a terrain feature that you're going to focus on, right, it allows you to kind of like evaluate the wind a little bit more closely and understand how you need to set up in that terrain feature to be successful, right? It's like, cause the terrain features aren't built to hunt on every, on every single wind, right? So it forces you to kind of be strategic because you have to look at it just from where's my wind going to come from? Is it, is, am I in hill country? Am I close to water? What's my thermal going to do in that, in that area? Is it a saddle? Is it just just a funnel? Is it an inside corner of a field? Is it a bench? You know what I mean? Because the wind is going to play differently in all these places, and you have to kind of take that into consideration. And then once you kind of know what area you're trying to get to, it's like then the, the trick becomes access, right? How you get in there. Where are the deer trails running in, in, 
in conjunction to where you're trying to get to and what's my path going to be to, in order to get there. So I impact the, you know, the deer movement as minimal, as minimally as possible. Right. So it forces you to kind of like ask all these other questions as opposed to like, there's this deer over here. I just need to get like, for me, hunting terrain takes the emotion out of the decision. And I'm, I'm an, and I'm able to be analytical because when I start to focus on the deer, to me, it's almost like buck fever. If I know I can go find a deer in this area and I know where he's going to be, I start to get a little bit, I start to make bad choices because I'm just, I'm going to try to be aggressive and try to go get that deer. And then I end up, I, I end up screwing it up. Whereas if I, if I, if I just look at the terrain and I go, all right, I know there's going to be good deer in this area because I saw a sign that says there's good deer in this area. Right. And I know there's a nice one, you know, maybe the deer that I have on camera and I know he lives somewhere in this area. If he's traveling from A to B, you know, what's the most likely terrain feature he's going to use to get there. And I'm not necessarily hunting him, but I'm saying if good deer, if he feels good enough to use it, other good caliber deer or mature deer probably feel the same. Right. And so I'm increasing my odds of having an encounter with the type of deer that I'd like to have an encounter with, whether it's the one I had on camera or whether it's one I've never met before, but I'm looking at it going, there is a good deer that is smart in these woods that deems these terrain features as his safest way to, to get from point A to point B. I should hunt the, that spot because good deer should pass by. And that's kind of how I look at I it. Agree, and it takes I the agree. emotion out of it. Yeah. And, and speaking of taking the emotion out of it, I'm not sure if this is just a, I, I, I'm sure everybody does this to agree, but I think I do it to myself a little bit more. Um, to me, it, it takes some pressure off of me in my decision-making. Yeah. I can more go with, what I'm seeing right now, and, and this may sound weird, but my intuition. Yep. Um, instead of sitting there and thinking and analyzing so hard because I know this spot and I've hunted this spot for years and I know when the deer start to use it and I know where I think the deer are going to come from and I know blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. When I go into an unknown or a public, I have a plan. Mm-hmm. but I'm not so scared to screw up because, well, I don't know. Right. I'm going in on a, a hunt, but it's also a learning adventure a lot of the times. And I'm not so um, stressed out or hard on myself um, or maybe scared to make a move to make an error because of the unknown. Right. Um, yeah, I think, and, and, and go ahead. I, and I just think it, yeah, it takes pressure off. And I really think it lets me not only enjoy hunting more, but because it puts me in that different mindset and in that different hunting style, I really think I'd learn a lot more. No, a hundred percent, man. And I, I think something you mentioned there was, it was important that you start to, take the pressure off yourself. And, and what I'm hearing you say kind of is, is like taking the pressure off yourself to, to, to know that like, look, I'm going to fail at this a lot more than I'm going to succeed. Cause it's just the nature of, of hunting. Right. And I think part and of it's the nature of learning and it's the nature of learning. And I think part of, you know, until we've gotten into this more, I guess what I'll call the internet age of podcasting and YouTube and all that stuff. Like people only saw the videos like you were talking about earlier with like on VHS or Betamax or whatever, right. Of like the Drury's and every show ended with like someone killing a 190 inch deer. Right. And so that became kind of the expectation. There's still shows out there today that kind of show that. And that's kind of like what people I think probably feel like that's what the expectation is. But 
I think guys like, you know, whether it's Dan Enfault or whether it's, you know, talking to Cody DeQuisto or, you know, the guys from the hunting public or whatever, whoever, you know, I know just, you know, in the conversations I've had with Cody, whether it was on the podcast or whether we were just like hanging out at a trade show, it's like, he talks a lot about the deer that, that he didn't get, you know what I mean? And like, and he even mentioned it on the show. He's like, people have this idea that like, I walk into the woods and like find a big deer, go kill big deer. And it's like a slam dunk and it's over. He was like, man, he's like, what people don't realize is like, how many times I screwed a hunt up like that on a big deer. That's how I ended up killing the next big deer. You know, he was like, and you have to just be willing to kind of play smart, play your odds, play the wind, you know, learn what you can learn about the deer. But at the end of the day, like you got to just go make a decision and and, and make a hunt and then let the well, chips and, fall where they may. And Cody, I mean, if you know anything about Cody, he is one of the, toughest motherfuckers around and i don't mean that just by physical i mean that by mental i mean just look at his his discipline with his diet and and working out he is a mentally tough son of a bitch yep and so it takes a professional to you know let's look at target shooting Mm-hmm. Your professional shooter, the biggest difference between your professional shooter is the guy that makes a mistake if he can fire his next arrow without letting that mistake carry over. Yep, 100%. When you can, that that arrow before has nothing to do with the next arrow. And I think that's a lot of that, that strong will uh, that a guy like Cody has. And that, that's why he is the, the, the fucking beast that he is, is because... Yeah, he's willing to get in there and make mistakes, and when he does, he doesn't let it break him. You, well, know, you know what I mean? Yeah. He takes that, and he learns from it, and it pushes him to get to the next. A hundred percent, and that was the biggest thing that I think that people like don't recognize is that, you know, it's like, man, these these guys that kill these big deer, like Cody's a great example, Andre's a great example, Dan, you know, like any of these guys that, you know, you look at as big buck killers that do it consistently, it's like, the common theme that I've found or the common thread is one, a couple, there's a couple it's, they're all super detail oriented, right? It's like, they ask the question why that nothing ever happens in the white tail woods for them that they just think that it happened by happenstance. You know what I mean? It's like, there's always a rhyme to a reason and they're always trying to uncover what that, what that reason was. The and a other- big part of that is they're all guys that like to hunt early season or late season when they can pattern as opposed to the rut, like yep. you said, because then you can't predict the circumstance yep. and things do just happen without reason at that point. Right. And look, look, we'd be lying if we said any of them would turn down a big deer that kind of walked by unknowingly to them, you know what I mean? During the rut or whatever, but you're hundred percent right. It's like they're those, planning. Yeah. Those dudes kill a lot of deer in October. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. and that's just the early re- and late, yep. early and late. Yep. And uh, the other thing, you know, that, that that you mentioned, you know, is just the mental toughness, right? It's like they they just failure to them isn't isn't failure. It's a milestone that they learn from that's going to help them in their next hunt. You know what I mean? And that's and that's kind of how they how they approach it. You know, it's and I think that that's the thing that people don't don't realize is that you know even these dudes who we see is ultimately successful that kill a big deer it seems like almost every year you know or every year or in the case of some you know multiple in a year is like man there were a lot of failures to get there a lot you know but people only remember the ones that 
ended up with a big, with a, with a, you know, with a deer on the ground. But when you talk to all these guys, they talk some about the deer's deer that they've harvested, but I found that they often talk more about the deer they didn't kill because that's actually what set them up for success for the mounts they have on their wall. Like that's the one thing Absolutely. that I, that's the thing that I kind of keep taking from them, no matter who it is. It's like they'll talk about four deer that they blew a chance on, and then and then and then they'll kind of give you a summary of like, you know, this deer I figured out like what his personality was and like and I and I set up this wrong or I called to him when I shouldn't have because I didn't read his body language. Check won't make that mistake again. I set up on this deer where I cut the wind a little too close in this particular bedding area on this terrain feature. I didn't account for the, the thermal tunnel that was going to happen in this type of terrain feature on this deer. You know, I played it a little too aggressive. Check. Won't happen again. You know, and so they kind of go through that. I think the thing that they have that a lot of people don't is all this stuff is almost like on memory recall for them where it's like, I'm like, I walk into an area and I'm like, if I try to think of the stuff, all the stuff I need to do, I was like, I'll end up just standing in front of my truck <laughs> for the whole hunt, trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And I've been guilty of that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. I do that for real. I've been guilty of sitting there analyzing the wind and analyzing the weather and going back and forth and which stand should I hunt? And I don't know, maybe I should do this. Maybe I should do that. Well, let me check the weather again. Well, I don't know. Let me check this other app. Well, fuck. Now it's too late for me to get to either stand. Yeah. Well, and the other thing too and that I noticed. And it's like, I mean, I'm just caught up in the thinking of it instead of going with it. Yeah. And speaking of the mental toughness, I mean, I, I'm actually going to w- start working on a video soon that I'm going to call the buck that broke me because it was uh, a, a deer that, uh, it wasn't a deer I knew or anything, but it was a fucking hammer eight point. We had absolutely amazing footage of this deer from several angles. And he just came in. He caught me off guard. And um, when I made the shot, I, I had I had another second to think, I would have known, okay, this deer's on pins and needles. He's 30 yards, aim a little low. But I put it right where I wanted. He dropped on the shot. I hit him high. And... Um, didn't know what happened. It, it, it was 50 days later he showed up on camera again. Wow. So he did live. But, I mean, as much as I had prepared for that deer and as much as I was going to Ohio and literally broke a couple of the lugs, studs on my truck and lost a fucking wheel on the highway. <laughs> had to get my truck towed back home. Then get another truck, drive all the way out to Ohio, no sleep, and all this. And that's not counting any of the, you know, shooting preparation, camera preparations, everything else. And as a hunter, you you make year-round preparations and hope that you get that one opportunity. And that's one thing a lot of people that don't hunt don't understand that. So much goes into hoping for that one moment and making sure it goes right. But I fucked it up a little bit. It didn't go right. The deer didn't die. I injured and hurt that deer. Yep. And it broke my confidence for a while. Well, should I aim low on the next one or should I do that? And it, it just, the whole rest of the time, I hunted as hard as I could, but I was, I know I was making mistakes. Right. So, um, so let me, and add. it's because I let that, I let that mistake continue into the next one. Right. Yeah. And I a hundred percent agree with you, man. It's like, you gotta, 
you got to be able to compartmentalize that stuff. You know what I mean? And, and, and it's easier said than done. Right. It's, it's, you know, I know for me, you know, when I'm, you know, that again, you were just talking about Ohio. It was the year I killed the nice deer that I killed in Ohio. There was a, the day before I had a great deer come in. I watched him for 40 minutes, man, ripping up trees, being a gentleman behind a doe, just walk, coming along with her, tearing trees up, you know, making, uh, rubs, ripping up saplings, ripping up bushes, you know, the whole, the whole nine putting on a spectacle. And I've, I filmed, I filmed some of it. Um, couldn't get a lot of it cause he was kind of in some brush where I couldn't see him really well. Long story short was, was he kind of got out of sight. I, I grunted at him when he got out of sight to try to bring him in. And I was like, there's no way he's going to come in. He's on a doe. And she'd already kind of passed through, um, the shooting lane. He tipped down in some brush and, I sat there, I grunted at him. And when I grunted, he was down below me and brushed and he just thrashed a tree for like another five minutes, just watched it moving, like just, you know, heard it and watched it. And then all of a sudden he went quiet and I, th- I was like, well, he moved on his way to follow that doe, you know? And a couple more minutes went by and I was like, you know, it's been five, maybe 10 minutes, who knows? You know, it wasn't any more than 10 minutes, but it was long enough to where I was like, he's probably long gone. And I was like, you know what? I'll grunt one more time do a little grunt sequence and see if maybe he's within earshot that he wants to come back and just defend his turf or whatever. And made the mistake of not checking my surroundings before I did it. And so I grunted and I went and just grabbed my bow. And when I looked over to my left to grab my bow, he was standing right there at like 23 yards and, Mm. and, and didn't even get a shot. He saw me, right. He saw me move. Of course he knew exactly where the grunt came from. Right. Cause they pinpoint that stuff. And he was out of there, gone, right? Really nice deer. Like the one I killed was like 130 inches roughly, I think is what I like rough scored him at-ish. This one was bigger than that. And I was, needless to say, I was pretty, pretty bummed, right? Because I was like, man. Absolutely. You know, I was like, I just watched this whole thing happen. He put on a show, like would have been a great, great kill to have, you know what I mean? If he would have read the great script story, great story, you know, and then I make a mistake like I've never been in a tree before, you know what I mean? Just getting caught up in the moment and blew my chance. And I was like, that's it. Like this hunt this week, this trip's done. I was like, I'll probably not get another shot at another nice deer. Now I'd seen bucks every day, but that was by far and away like the nicest deer I'd seen. And I was like, man, I doubt I'll see another one like that. Well, next day came back, you know. I ended up sitting in the same spot because I had, it was just one of those areas, man, where I was at the top of the leeward side of a ridge and I was just bulletproof from the wind in that set. Just the way the wind, there's a small, there's a small saddle right behind me that kind of funnel the bucks up between two. I'm sitting in between two doe bedding areas essentially. And bucks just run that area nonstop during the rut. And I know basically what time it turns on. And so I just, when I do hunt that area, I go back the same time each year that I go back. Cause it just flips on like a light switch. And, uh, sure enough, this other deer, this other deer came in, you know, I ended up blind grunting him in and he came in on a rope. He ended up walking to the same spot that that other deer busted me and I ended up airing him at 23 yards. But it was one of those things where it's like, if I would have continued to be bummed out about the opportunity I had the day before and let it ate me up, I probably would have blew that chance too. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it was one of those things where I was bummed about it. But I had a good, like, I don't know, man. I just, I remember going back to camp that night and I was hunting with two buddies and we met back at camp and I was, you know, they asked what happened. I told them and I was pissed off about it. And I was like, you know what though? I was like, man, 
I saw the rut break out like you see on TV. You know what I mean? I was like, I watched that happen in in real time. And, you know, a lot of guys hunt a lot of years and don't ever see that type of action. You know what I mean? Where it's like grunting, snorting, snort wheezing, ripping up trees. Like, and that was like for two days in a row that I saw that every day. And I was like, you know, I was like, I should just appreciate the fact that I'm getting to watch all this, you know, and, and, and enjoy the fact that I'm able to kind of take part in their world and they have no clue I'm there. You know, I was like, that's super cool. And so I just kind of tried to put a positive spin on it. And then the next day was rewarded, I guess, so to speak. So mindset, man, it'll, it'll, it'll make a hunt or break a hunt. That's for sure. Yeah, for sure. And and you, you know, you kind of revel in success and the story when it comes together, but you dwell on details Mm -hmm. in the failure. Oh man. And it's it's the failure that you think of the smallest details. And when when it's a success, you just kind of look at the broader picture. Um, and, and like you said, it's the failures that you really, really learn from. And it's the ones that stick with us the most Yeah, are the the ones we screwed up on. Yeah. I'll tell you what, dude, I've never, I've never called ever again without checking my surroundings first. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like like lesson, lesson learned, but, uh, man, I want to make, I want to make a transition here, man. Cause you've, 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 you know, alluded to, you know, doing a lot of filming and, you know, filming in the tree and stuff like that. So I want to ask you, man, like, you know, I know I was, I don't remember if I was listening to you say something on a video or if I read it somewhere, but I know when you first started filming, you know, you got into it and, you know, you realized that you were kind of going down a similar path to what you were seeing on TV and what some other guys are doing from like the, from the perspective and the way people were portraying their, their hunts, right. It's, it's all kind of, um, candied and PC, shall we say. Right. 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 Um, you know, and you were like, that doesn't fit you. Number one. And number two, you felt like they're not telling the full story, right? There's a lot of things that they leave out because they feel like it's, it might harsh someone's vibe, (laughs) so to speak. You know what I mean? And you just kind of came out and was like, look, I'm going to be real raw and this is what I do and who I am. And I'm just going to capture that. And I've watched a bunch of your films, dude, and it's it's refreshing just to see a real dude lay down some film and have a hunt and and be stoked whenever he puts something on the ground, right? As opposed to, you know, trying to parse all of their words to make sure that someone doesn't get offended by by something someone says. So where did all that come from and where did the filming stuff start? Like how like you know, it, 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 I mean, cause it's difficult to sell film, man. You know what I mean? And you're and you're dedicated to it. So how did all this kind of kick off? Well, I, I appreciate that, man, because I do really put a, a hell of a lot of work into it and all. And, um, you know, before before I started carrying a bow everywhere, I was carrying a skateboard everywhere. Heard that. And me and my buddies used to do a ton of filming. We used to go, you know, down Towson and down Baltimore and shit and, um, you know, it wasn't always fucking pleasant for one. Like, <laughs> yeah. um, it wasn't always pretty being a white boy down Baltimore, right. you know, as a teenager and skating some of these places and shit. So, and just being who I was, everything, uh, just had a, 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 I guess a little bit more edge and that's kind of, you know, kind of a stereotypical thing with skaters or whatever, but right. 
I mean, it's just the way it is. And, and, and I always loved filming and it's what gave me a lot of the ideas for the different angles and captures of everything. And yeah, when I got into hunting, um, I, I, obviously I started filming everything and, uh, you know, I obviously wanted to, I enjoyed hunting enough that I wanted to somehow be involved in the hunting industry. But right. as a young guy with no mentor, really no connections, um, not any even personal property to hunt, um, without having much of anything, I really just didn't have much of anything. So I was just doing mimicking what I saw and I kind of learned that, well, the way I'm seeing these hunts and I'm trying to learn from, there's a lot of shit that I'm not learning because they just don't show it. I mean, right. when you kill your first deer, that's when you learn how much fucking work deer hunting. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I have had, you know, I, I've had getting the deer out and processed takes longer than the entire hunt did itself. And it may have been an all day hunt. Yeah. Um, so I, I was, you know, just filming, doing my own thing. And, and it didn't take me long to realize like, look, I don't have any connections. I don't have anybody that can vouch for me. There's nobody that knows me. I'm just some random kid that like doing this shit. Right. And I, realized too like you know i would show some of my i'd be all excited i got a kill on film and i'd show a buddy and whatever and one night um i had been talking to a friend and i called him up and i'm like yeah dude i just shot this fucking deer and it was only a doe but i'm like this is what happened and she came in and i i, I got drawn back and realized she walked out of camera frame and i had to lower the bow and readjust the camera and get everything drawn back killed her you know he was all excited and hyped and he came over and we you know you use those old ass red yellow and white cables to plug the son of a bitch in the tv and, and, <laughs> and watch it <laughs> and he watches the video i'm like what do you think he's like that was nowhere near as exciting as the story you told me i was like what do you mean he's like well you're acting like you're not even excited that you killed this deer you're talking about like you know, great opportunity to harvest this animal. What, what happened to, holy shit, dude, I just fucking smoked this doe. He's like, where, where, where'd that go? You know? Right. And, and I kind of realized like, holy shit, I'm taking the thing I love the most and I'm dulling myself. Right. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not being myself in any way. I'm like, that was completely fake. You're right. Like what the fuck happened to all that excitement? Um, and, and I wasn't able to then portray that excitement. And I just kind of thought, well, if anyone's ever going to see my shit, it's because I show it to them. Right. And if I'm showing it to you, I can show you whatever I want, just like a skateboard video or anything else. I can do whatever the fuck I want. Right. It's your choice to watch it or not. And I just kind of, yeah, just, just kind of sent that whole thing wayside of, what the typical personality is and maybe what the typical format of a hunting video is. And I mean, yeah, I, I don't harvest animal. I, I, I fucking kill shit. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's real. Like here, here's the honest truth about deer hunting. If I could not eat 
venison. If venison was poisonous, I would still love deer hunting. Right. That's just the way it is. The, <laughs> right. the fact that the population needs controlled, and it really does, it's not just something we say, and the fact that you can eat it, to me, that's a bonus. Right. Like, that's a major bonus. But I'd be out there hunting them anyway. Yeah. And so, yeah, I just started filming and doing doing shit my own, and I, I just, you know, started raw, real, no bullshit. And, and that's the way I try to show it. And it always did, and it still really does um, kind of hamper me in a way in the fact that there's a lot of people that would never touch me as far as sponsor or association. Right. There's a lot of people that never watch a video enough to find out what I'm really about. You know, they see an Instagram video where I'm holding up a bloody goose saying some funny, dumb shit and think that's all I am. And it's like, well, yeah, I like to say funny, dumb shit, but that doesn't mean I didn't use the animal to its fullest or respect it. I'm just, I'm just having fun. Why, right. why do I want to not have fun? Yeah. Um, and it, that's kind of just how I rolled with it. Yeah, dude, it's, it's, it's cool. And, it, and it's funny. Cause like there's this crew of dudes, you know, and like, I, I was talking to Cody about this, like he and I started talking about it when we were in, in Iowa and we were, we were talking about fitness one. Cause I, I like to get up and get my grind on in the morning before work and get a workout in and do all that stuff. Um, kind of weird about my diet as well. You know, so we had some similarities there. Um, but we started talking a little bit about extreme sports cause I grew up skateboarding, snowboarding, you know, and hunting. Those were like, that's kind of, you know, what I did. And then I wrestled too growing up. It was like the, 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 the sport that I was good at. Um, oh, yeah. and we were talking just about like, you know, I'd mentioned just how, like, you know, I see a lot of parallels for me between extreme sports, you know, wrestling and how I hunt because those sports are very much individual, you know, individual sports wrestling. I was on a team, but it was very much an individual sport, skateboarding, snowboarding, very individual. And they're very, and those sports are ones in which you, to try to master a trick or, you know, master certain techniques in wrestling, like you're going to fail a hundred times before you're ever successful. And so you kind of get used to that failure model of learning and that aggressive model and it was funny because he's like, you know, I never thought of it that way. He's like, but you're right. You know what I mean? He's like, you fail constantly, like trying these tricks over a handrail or whatever when you're skating and you and you you do it and do it and do it because you love it. And then when you finally land it that one time, it's like the whole world came together. You know, he was like, and it's amazing. He was like, and and so we started kind of talking about that. And then what I realized was, it was like, you know, there's him, you know, I don't know Kurt personally, but I know, you know, Kurt from, from working class. I know he was in like BMXing and I need to have him on the show at some point. Um, you know, you skate the bow hunting fiend was, uh, I believe was into like snowboarding, skateboarding into like hardcore music and stuff like that. So there's like this group of like this ne- and, and then D rock. And it's like, there's this group of people that are all around our age ish that don't look like the Drury's don't talk like the Drury's don't hunt like the Drury's, but it doesn't mean we're any less relevant to hunting than, than, than they are. Um, and I would maybe, I, 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 would maybe, I, I absolutely agree. Um, hundred percent. And, and yeah, the thing about those sports, like you said, is you're, you're going to fail. And in most of them, it's going to hurt. Oh yeah. Not only physically, <laughs> but I mean, it hurts your fucking pride when you fall on that rail and, and you got four of your boys sitting there laughing at you. Sure. They come over and they help you up, make sure you're all right. 
but they're fucking laughing at you. And maybe, may, maybe the cute chick from high school you dig was there to see it too. You know, <laughs> right. it just fucking hurts. <laughs> yeah. But it builds you to be stronger and to continue doing it. And in those individual things, there's no one else to push the blame onto. Yep. But there's no, also no one else to take the glory from you. Yep. Um, you know, like you said, they're individual achievements where you hold yourself accountable and, and you get to, to revel in the achievement. Of course we got coaches and we got friends and shit like that, but it's an individual thing. And, you know, talking about the juries, um, I'm not sure if I've spoke about this on a podcast at all yet, but, um, I've definitely talked to some of my friends about this. Um, the, a Drury video that they made, I believe it was for field and stream was, is, and is what's directly responsible for me to start filming my hunts and, and fall in love with it at the moment I did the way I did. Mm -hmm. Um, now as far as relativity and importance to the industry and everything, the Drury brothers have a master system of whitetail hunting. 100%. They have prime properties that they can have prime food source at those prime type of years. They have prime hunting locations. They will literally plant a food plot and everything else around a blind location or a tree that they want to put a stand in. Yep. And then they will not put any pressure on these properties until the absolute perfect time when that deer is there. It is a master plan for hunting giant whitetail. Yeah, and look, I, I'll it be the first to... It is not something that nearly anyone else can mimic. Right, and I look, and I say, hey, to the person who can do that, like, good on you. You know what I mean? It's not... Absolutely. It's not, it's not my style. who else can do that? Right, exactly. It's not my style. Most people can't do that. And I don't want it to seem like, you know, that I, look, I don't know the Drury's from, from Adam. I've never met them. I was in like a bar the same time they were at ATA or something like that. It's the closest I ever came to meeting them or talking to them. Um, from all accounts, like they seem like nice people, you know what I mean? And they've done a lot for the industry and they do a lot for hunting. You know what I mean? So it's like, I want to make, like, I don't want to discredit what they've done in their influence. Not at all. Not in, in any way. And yeah. how much they've helped things and, in in. in and, and that they are good for, for the community. I think the point that I'm more so making, they I think mastered what, it. Yeah. And I think the point that I'm more so trying to make, and I think, you know, that what you would agree with, and I think it's something that I talked with, uh, with, uh, I don't remember if it was on the podcast or not, but I know, um, uh, Cody and I talked about, it. I think it was off offline. We were talking about it. I was like, but as much as like, we talk about hunting, being, being in a spot of, needing more hunters and recruitment and stuff like that. Right. It's, you got to start at some point looking outside of like the, the thin, narrow, you know, envelope that we try to get hunters to come through, which is, you know, rural America who grew up with hunting in their family, because like there's the, the populations in rural America are dwindling because most people leave those areas, go to suburban areas to be closer to cities for, for jobs. Like that's just how, how it works. That's why when you look at a map and you look at like where the population density is, it's around these city areas. Why? Because those are the places that hold 
well, well-paying, high-paying jobs, right? And that's kind of what's Correct. what's happening. Opportunity, right. if nothing else. Right. So the kid that's growing up that typically would have grown up maybe, say, in my hometown is now growing up outside of Philadelphia or outside of Baltimore or outside of Pittsburgh or outside of Indianapolis or pick any city in any state, right, where he typically would have been introduced to hunting naturally because maybe his family owned a farm or some land or whatever, is now growing up in the suburbs is not getting exposed to hunting. And maybe he does get exposed to hunting. And when he does, maybe it's through Drury, Drury videos, right? And that's fine. But if you're a 14-year-old kid, so I just take myself as an example. When I was a 14-year-old kid, if I had no other introduction to hunting, my family hunted, so I was fortunate to where I kind of learned from my, from my dad, my uncles, and stuff like that. And I was brought up in a hunting family. But if I weren't, and my first introduction to hunting, and I was somewhat interested, was, you know, the Drury's. But I was a, a skateboarding, snowboarding, punk rocker listening to The Exploited. You know what I mean? It's like, and I was like, I'm into hunting, and 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 this is the guy that I that's that represents who I am. I'd have been like, nah, no thanks, not interested. Like, exactly, he, he and like you said, we we need to get more people into the hunting industry and. You may have this guy who, whose family has land, but he hasn't really been influenced to it. So if he's only watching a video, and I'm not going to say the Drury Brothers because I don't, I, I have the highest respect for them. So yeah, I don't, 100%. I'm using, I'm, I'm basically, we're using the name because they are the staple. They are the standard. Well, and everybody, everybody recognizes um, them. They know who they exactly. are, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, these, high-end hunting shows and high-end hunting productions. Most of the time when they recover the animal, you don't see, a lot of times you don't see the animal in position of when it's found and when it's recovered. They've cleaned the animal up. They've propped it up. They've cleaned the blood away from it. They've tucked the tongue back in. They've harvested these animals. And in a lot of ways, I feel like for that 14-year-old skater, who, who I was also, or for that guy whose family does have property and maybe now he's interested in getting out to learn because he wants to escape this city life that, that he's in to, to make a living for himself, I feel like it's a disservice to not show the blood, not show the sweat, not show the gore. I mean, because that's real. That's that's part of it. That's, yep. that's the reality of it. And if you have this um, a kid or not even a kid, just anyone that's new to it or ignorant to it, you make it look like all pretty and rainbows and that's what they're going to think it is. And the same with people against hunting. Yeah. I mean, if all they ever see are pretty deer walking around through their neighborhood and then when they see a hunting video and they, everything looks so pretty and just majestic and it doesn't look like a wild animal when instead of showing it when you found it that evening you wait till this the grass is green and the sun is sun is up and the sky's nice and blue and the lighting's perfect it looks like a fucking harmless majestic creature right not a wild animal and and i feel like you're almost then uh, you're helping reiterate the fact that it, it's an animal that shouldn't be hunted that they're these harmless, beautiful creatures. And it's, I don't know, again, I, I just feel the, the, the reality of it, um, is not always portrayed and everyone says they want to get more hunters into it. Well then let's be real with these people. 
Right. Yeah. hundred percent. I think, uh, I always equate it to like, it's like sending someone who's never, who's never fought MMA and saying, Hey, we're going to take you to an MMA gym so you can check it out, but you're going to have pads on and they're going to be doing some light sparring. Right. So it's not going to be a big deal. It's just so you can kind of understand what the, what the sport is and what it's all about. And then when you get there, they're like, nah, just kidding, man. We don't have any pads here. We forgot him at home. And actually you're going to fight this guy. Who's, uh, who, who just, who just signed a UFC contract today and, uh, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like a little bit of, a little bit of bait and switch, you know, but yeah, and you're just never going to have interest again. Right. You got a really bad taste. It was like, that's not what it's like, you know? And I think more so from like some of the TV shows, I think I, to me, and I agree with you. It's like, I, I like seeing the raw real deal, like the recovery and stuff like that. And there are some shows who have, you know, that do the producing thing that do show some of that. And I do have, you know, I respect the fact that they do show the recovery and it's not like the first visual of the animal after the, after the kill is like this cleaned up, you know, image or whatever they, that, that shows some of that. And I won't name, you know, who they are, but there are a few that are out there. Right. And I, and I appreciate them making that effort. But what I will say is that where you, I think where they were like 90% of those shows lose is that if it's someone who is new to hunting, if they think that they have to have property to hunt in order to be successful, you're doing them a disservice and you're doing our community a disservice because most people aren't probably ever going to get to a point to where they own a large enough track of land to hunt. That's just the reality of the world we live in today, right? Um, and it's not good or bad. It just, it is what it is, what it is. And so then if they think that, you know, hunting can only be done a certain way. Um, and if I don't have the land to do it, I can't do it. And they're, and they end up not getting into hunting because of that. Then it's like, I feel like we've done a disservice. That's why I feel like, you know, the guys like the hunting public, I think does a really good thing because I think they show that like, look, you don't have to own anything to do this. You know what I mean? Like there's access yeah. out here, go use what's available and you can have success, right? You don't have to be on you know, grandpa's back 40 to be able to kill a deer. Like you can do it on a piece of public land that no one else wants to hunt. I mean, you can do it on Pennsylvania public land, which by a lot of accounts or a lot of standards probably is not the best in terms of pressure and opportunity and stuff like that. But plenty of people get it done every year, you know? Um, well, you like you, you still have the, uh, small brew going on. I do. Yeah. Okay. So uh, after this podcast, I definitely need to get some from me. And when I say that, I don't not asking for coffee. I'm going to buy some from you. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because of what you do with skull brew and why you started it. And it is very important. Yeah. And I will be the first to admit that I, I'm, I'm a little bit crazy, dude. I, I, I'm, I know I'm not, I don't think the same and operate as everyone else. Okay. It's just the way it is. I've been punched in the head too many fucking times. <laughs> I've hit my head skateboarding too many times. It's just, it's just the way it is. And so I really appreciate the fact that you step up to do something like that because it is so fucking important. Um, or like D-Rock, how he's constantly, everything is unity and bringing each other together and conservation. And I have the utmost respect for anyone that, that does something to keep public lands public. So these guys, including myself, um, have that opportunity. And I agree. If you make people think you have to have private, 
you have to have trail cams. You got to have a mineral site. Well, and if you can't bait, I tell you what, starting the bait was probably one of my biggest downfalls in the regression of my whitetail hunting. Right. Yep. Um, but yes, uh, it, it, it's very important, the, the conservation aspect, the public land aspect. And, yeah. uh, you know, and, and I really do have the utmost and highest respect for someone like yourself that went kind of above and beyond and created something to help give back. Like I, I give you mad props on that, dude. Man, I appreciate that. I mean, look, it's uh, we all do what we can. You know, we all we all can do different things. And I think I think that's the most important thing is that, you know, whatever we're capable of doing, you know, you know, with with you, it's putting out real content. That's that's no bullshit raw and showing people the real deal, you know, and and, and making sure people see that side of that side of hunting and, and the passion that comes through in that. I think that to me, that's equally as important as starting something that's going to support conservation, because I think they all work hand in hand. You know, what I mean, it's not a. Uh, it's not a one or the other. It's, it's, it's an altogether type of approach that we have to take. Um, you know, and so I think those that want to divide and, and, and create division in, in our group, you know, in our community, I, I just don't think there's any space for them. Um, you know, it, it personally, you know, it's kind of my, my take on it. Um, you know, it, 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 and I hope those, you know, I hope those folks kind of recognize that we're, you know, all kind of a, a group that's, that's on the, in, in an area of need for, you know, as D-Rock, you know, talks about of just being one community, helping to lift each other up and support each other, no matter how we hunt, you know, what, what tools we use to hunt, what type of land we hunt, how we like to hunt, what we like to portray, what we don't want to portray, like all that stuff is, 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 um, a non-issue in, in many cases, as long as we're all kind of working toward the same, the same goal. If we do that, we'll, we'll ultimately get there and everyone will do their part, um, as their, as their, you know, skill sets and capabilities allow them to, you know what I mean? So I appreciate that, man, but there's a, I think we all do as much as we can and that's all we can ever ask of each other is, is just that. So. Well, but, I, I appreciate that too. And I agree. And yeah, when push comes to shove, as long as you're pushing and shoving the guys next to you to move forward, um, you know, it's, and it, 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 it's a crazy thing. It really is about unity and conservation, but I mean, you're talking about probably one of the most masculine ego driven things besides MMA right. and that's hunting. Yep. Everyone wants their image. Everyone wants their ego. Everyone wants to be better than the other guy. And, and it is intimidating for someone new to get into. And that's why, you know, it is important for, I mean, podcasts just like this to, to open up to, to, to the guys to make them realize, Hey, like, or, or the hunting public, like you don't have to have the best equipment. You don't even have to necessarily have a tree stand. I mean, you don't have to have matching camo. You right. just got to want to get out and try it and, and take what comes to you. And, and a lot of that, unfortunately, I think is defined as his changed because of the definition of what is a, um, an acceptable animal to take. Yeah. And by acceptable, that's much different. I, I don't mean acceptable as in the legal sense. 
I mean right. acceptable as in pressure from your peers. Right, perception um, of a mature and, deer and harvesting a certain class and dude, of animal I or fell, I fell into that hardcore. I can't tell you how many years I filmed bucks either following a doe or I rattled them in, and I have great footage of rattling these bucks in and shit, and I didn't shoot them because, well, I want to be like the guys on TV, mm-hmm. and I want to kill these big deer, and no one's going to care if I kill this little deer. And I let, I, I don't know how many great opportunities go for nothing more than what I thought someone else was going to perceive it. Right. Never did I take in the consideration of how I was perceiving it. And that's a big thing that I've gone backwards on. Like this year in Ohio, I had the goal to cut a head off a turkey. I was hunting with my buddy Keith. We, it was slow as shit the first couple days. I was filming now. Now I'm filming as the modern assassin for Tack Driver TV on Pursuit Channel. Mm-hmm. It was the first opportunity I got with that. And we had some jakes coming in, and it was like, dude, I'm going to cut one fucking hat off. Yeah, I saw. I watched and, that video, man. It was killer. Yeah, I, I just about cut this turkey's head off with an arrow. It was like 80% off. But, yeah, it was just a jake. But I had started shooting that decap. I retuned my bow to shoot the decap. I actually four-fletched an arrow with turkey wings that from a turkey I killed on that same property. <laughs> That's awesome. So I, I made my own turkey feather, feather fletching, fletched it myself, made a four fletch, tuned it, got everything together. And the fact that I did that made that Jake a fucking trophy. hundred percent, man. hundred percent. I, I, I mean, I, I killed it with my buddy. I killed it with a self fletched arrow, killed it on film. It was, I mean, I was, I, I was jacked, dude. I mean, yeah, it, I it remember. Just as jacked is when I <laughs> shot that first big Tom. Like you, you know, it was, it, it was awesome. It was an achievement, and it was a trophy animal to me. Right, man. I want to ask you though, you know, because I know we're, we've been talking for about an hour and a half, and I want to get to this one, uh, this one aspect uh, of the conversation because we've been talking about filming. And I think one of the things that always kind of comes up and I know I've had like, so I'll, I'll be a hundred percent honest. I film sometimes, sometimes I don't. Right. Like, so I often will take a camera. Yeah. yeah. And then I get fed up with it like partway through the season. And then like last year, like partway through the year, I broke the camera out again, but I didn't film with it any the year, year before. Um, just for a multitude of reasons. And one reason is, is like, just, is just setting it up. It's a pain in the ass. It's a, it's a pain in the ass. And then I just never have a, a a camera arm that I liked and and stuff like that. And I bring this up because I know that you have been working on a new camera arm to solve some of the self film or mobile hunter uh, problems. So I wanted to ask you what's up with that and is it out yet? When's it coming out? What's the deal with it? Yeah, man, that's the, uh, it's called the assassin reach. Um, it's something I worked on in conjunction with Matt Garris from out on the limb manufacturing. Um, Matt's a great guy, makes awesome products. I had an idea and approached Matt with it cause I knew he could make it happen. Right. Um, and we went back and forth and I had to, had to keep scaling him down. Um, <laughs> you know, say, no, I don't want to go that big. This is what I'm looking for. 
what I set out to do was I, I've always had a problem with every camera arm system I've had, whether um, any lightweight one, it doesn't have any adjustability. Right. Any that have adjustability, they're too heavy. Any that are rock solid are just giant. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of set out to fit something uh, to fit my filming style, which is a one, I'm a self filmer. So the biggest part in self-filming, um, well, one of the major aspects of self-filming is transportation and setup. Right. Um, because you're, it's not like you got a camera guy that's carrying all the camera gear and you're just carrying your belt. Right. You know, I'm carrying the camera. I'm carrying the camera arm. I'm carrying two to three GoPros. I'm carrying extra batteries for everything. I'm carrying extra memory cards for everything in case there's a failure. Um, I may have a mini tripod or something I can wrap around a tree branch to, to do a, a harvest recording. Um, so I never found a Camarn system I liked and set up to develop my own. And yeah, it's the Assassin Reach. Nice. Um, the entire system uh, weighs three pounds, and that's the arm, the base, and the strap. And the strap, if you cut the steel hook off and replace it with, like, an aluminum carabiner, you can cut out, um, I think it's somewhere around 10 or 12 ounces right there. Wow. Um, yeah, but it's it's the cheapest, highly functional strap I can offer to the consumer. Right. See, this is the other thing. Um, you know, like, a lot of guys are saying, well, why are you using all black? Why paint it all black? Why use a black strap? When do you see black around the tree? And it's like, because the, if I wanted to give you a gray strap, it's going to cost me an extra $14. Right. So it's going to cost you an extra $14. And there's a lot of guys that are just going to replace the strap, whatever the hell they want in the first place. So why charge <laughs> them the extra money? Right. If I want to paint it a different color, it's going to cost more money, which it's going to cost the consumer more money. If you want to paint it a different color, go for it. You know, a lot of the guys that do this self-hunt mobile thing, they're, they're, they're DIY guys anyway. Yeah. But so, yeah, it's a, it, I designed it to where it's only three pounds. Um, the base attaches to the tree with just a cam strap. And then the arm is a separate piece. So the way the mechanism works for the base is it's a shoulder ball with a single lever. Um, you pull the lever up and it reduces the friction on the ball. Um, you adjust the ball to get the receiver to where you feel it's about level, push the handle down and it locks it in place. You then just set the camera arm into the receiver. It has a bubble level on it. You can make any fine tune adjustments. And you're, you're then ready to, uh, uh, attach your camera. Um, the, some of the other aspects I've included, it's a, it's a three piece arm. Um, I have a video on YouTube that, that goes over the entire camera arm and especially the reasons I find the three arm system to be superior to a two. Mm -hmm. One of the main things is when you have the camera arm folded up to its shortest, in a three-piece arm, your camera is still out at the end. When you have a two-piece folded up at the shortest, your camera's back in the tree. Right. Um, and you, you just get a lot more maneuverability. 
um, but it extends the arm. Uh, it's a 10 inch section with a seven inch and a seven inch. So 24, and then you get another four to six inches from the tree with the base, depending on the angle of the tree. Um, it can be mounted on a horizontal limb. Um, it, it's highly versatile. It's very lightweight and we've, uh, it has a very small footprint for packing. I mean, you can literally fit the camel arm in your back pocket or in a water bottle pouch. Yeah, man. I was checking it out actually yesterday. I think I was taking a look at it because I'm trying to, I think this year I am going to bust the camera out again, especially because I'm going to Iowa this year for like two weeks and I want to film that whole trip. So I've been kind of exploring and I was checking it out, man. And it's like, it's sturdy. Just looking at it and and watching the videos you made, uh, you know, as it was being developed, it's, it just looks rock solid. And even, you know, especially in comparison to the competition that's out there, it's, and it's, it's even lighter weight, which I was really surprised by. Um, so you did a killer job of creating a, a product that I think is going to, that I think is going to work. That's meeting the weight requirements for mobile hunters and just the stability of it. And, and, and we'll take a beating. So kudos to you for, uh, for getting it done. Where can people find more information about it and, and pricing and stuff like that? Where can they, where can they order? Yeah, it's, it's actually, you know, orders are, uh, being placed now it is up on the website um, my website themodernassassins.com right there after after you click enter um, I do have a little uh, click here to enter since um, you know my, my page is a little explicit you know mm-hmm. you click enter you know what you're getting it is but it is right. <laughs> uh, I, I don't aim to please I aim to kill <laughs> right um, but yeah you click right on there on the website and you'll see uh, the assassin reach the camera arm you can place the order there we will be getting all uh, the pre-orders we'll be getting to the hunters before september um hopefully some of the others will be getting them right then too um but yeah you, you can find it on the modern assassins.com uh if you look up my youtube the modern assassins you can see kind of a full uh in-depth demo video uh, of it right now um and then, of course, my social media platforms, uh, Instagram is what I'm on the most. And I, I, I do a lot on there as far as the promotions and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and as well as interacting with uh, customers. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the best places to reach me. And that's uh, at the underscore modern underscore assassin. Awesome, man. Well, dude, I appreciate you coming on. We've been on for over an hour and a half now. I could sit and talk to you for hours. So I think we're going to have to definitely do a, a, a part two at some point, but, uh, man, I might have to sneak down there and do a, do a stag hunt with you here. One of these, one of these days, cause I'm really interested. We didn't even get to talk about that. So we're definitely gonna have to do a part two, talk a little stag hunting and maybe even a little bit more, uh, a little bit more skateboarding, but everyone out there listening, be sure to follow the modern assassin on Instagram and YouTube. You won't be disappointed. Get the raw, real deal, the real shit, the straight dope from, from my brother, from another mother in Maryland, man. So, Hey, thanks for coming on, buddy. I appreciate your time. I I really do appreciate it, man. And, um, you know, I really do appreciate anybody that has pre-ordered or helped me get this cam arm out. Um, again, the guys that, that do a lot for conservation and public land and, uh, I'm not bullshitting. I'm going to get some of that skull brew to, to help support your calls, man. We'll make it happen, brother. Thanks, man. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank Garrett for joining and would like to, of course, thank all of you for listening. If you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and subscribe to the podcast while you're there if you haven't yet uh, done that. 
Uh, before I forget, head over to gumleafusa.com and use the promo code TRUTH19. That will save you some cash on a new pair of rubber boots if you are in the business of looking at some new rubber boots for this hunting season. And before we shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. And until next time, makes me proud, makes me steal. I could show you through the door. If it all It takes a special No one to call up for Damaged heads Broken letters Rationalize yourself in numbers But I your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss life on the water every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. <laughs> the destination for outdoor entertainment. You want to succeed, you want to fish, you want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.